0: Ryan Moore and I'm the pastor here. And before, before we jump into our text this morning, um, thought about when to say this, and 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 part of the reason why I wanted to share this with you all, I've had several conversations over the past week about um, what we're doing as a session. Some of that's more. What are you doing uh, with or you know with our session? And um, and I've, I've realized there's a lot of things happening behind the curtain, so to speak, that I think is important to share with you all because uh, you're also involved in this and 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 what that what i 'm talking about is is what we've been doing since i really since I got here, but the fall especially and, and, and then the spring what we 'll continue to do is is begin to in many ways refresh and um, Roll out in some ways our new shepherding practices uh, as a session. And uh, coming out of COVID, if you're any organization or church for, for sure, there's a lot of work that has to get done in finding out who's, who's returning, who's here. Those are a lot, there's a lot of phone calls that need to take place. Um, we rotate as a session, and so session members roll off to go on sabbatical, new ones come on. And they're handed new lists that they need to get in touch with. And, and so there's been a lot of work finding out who is uh, on the list of, of our elders. And, and then what do we do? What do we want to do as a church? Uh, what are the practices we've had uh, in the past? And where do, we, where do we want to go moving forward? And I will always say this, and I don't think this is anything new from Wallace. We want to be a shepherding church and what that means is if you join Wallace, you're going to be assigned an oversight elder. And that doesn't mean you guys always have to take windy walks together or become best friends. But what it means is this is how we assign care to you should you want to receive it. That as we make vows to the church, right, that, that, that if I, you know, in my sin were to run in the other direction away from God's grace, I'm, I'm saying to the, the officers in the church, come and get me, right, that's oversight care. That's one of the ways it works. But there's also other ways that it works, which is just, hey, how can I pray for you? How can I pray for your family? Um, are you guys okay? Are you okay? That there are these touch points. And how we do that is, is a more complicated thing than you might imagine. And, um, and so that is a lot of what we have been doing. And I certainly want to say to you all, I'm really, really proud of the work that uh, your session is doing in this attempt and we will continue to do. And at this point, what this might mean for you guys is you might have received a call from an oversight elder. Now, if you haven't, um, let us know, right? We're not perfect. Um, But this call could have even surprised you. Why is an elder from Wallace calling me? And that's fair as well. And so I think part of announcing this, what we've been doing, what we'll continue to do, is we're trying to lay footing for getting in contact with the people at Wallace. And that's everybody to from folks who are here every Sunday to folks who, you know, may come every once in a while that we don't see all the time. And so I I, want to alert you to that to say you will be hopefully getting a call from an elder, but don't panic. Um, This person's just wanting to touch base with you and find out how you're doing. And, um, you know, if you haven't been attending, is there a reason for that that we could pray about or or help you work through or maybe just know that, hey, I'm moving on to other things. Uh, Maybe my family's moving. That's all that that is. That's the least of what it is. But I also say this to the congregation. This will become, as we get better at doing this, the place where we also expect that you give our concerns, your concerns, to those shepherds. In other words, uh, five or six years down the road, if something were to blow up in your house or, or in your own life and nothing was said about it, We want these phone calls, these appointments that are being made to be the place where we as a congregation say, hey, things aren't okay. And I realize that that requires a lot of trust. And we are in the process of hopefully building that trust, continuing to build that trust as your officers in the church. But this is how we desire to work together. And so it's both and, like, it's going to be a little awkward maybe at first receiving calls, maybe getting an email, maybe somebody asking you to go to lunch or something like that. At the same time, as we begin to uh, come out of this phase, hopefully, uh, with COVID and and begin to reopen the church in many ways, um, that we do see this as a place where concerns can be given, Um, you being honest about what's going on in life so that our shepherding care can actually work. And this will be how we desire to do things. And you might be like, hey, you know what? Things are great. I'm plugged into this home group. And I'm really being ministered by the body here at Wallace. Um, and actually, I'm really good friends with this other elder, and we talk every other week. Hey, great. That's the job of a shepherding elder. I want to know that you're taken care of. It doesn't have to be me. It doesn't have to be one of the elders calling, but it's the job to know that you are being cared for. And so I think it's just important that we begin talking about that a little bit, and that's all I wanted to do this morning. One, to sort of acknowledge the work that's sort of going on behind the scenes that a lot of us don't see at first. And to express um, my excitement and, and just uh, praise for the work that they're doing, it's, it's not easy. Um, and also to allow us to um, know what's going on and to be engaged in that. And that this is, this is what we hope to improve upon as we move forward as a church that shepherds and cares for its people. Um, so if you have questions about that, please come and find me sometime after the service or shoot me an email. We can get together and talk about that. But I just wanted to highlight that, okay? All right, um, let us turn now to the preaching of God's Word. For those that usually time sermons, you can hit your timer now, please, not when I started. Uh, we're going to be reading from Acts chapter 2, and I'm just going to read down to verse 12 here. Uh, in some ways, we'll be taking a lot of what Peter in his sermon reflects um, after this, uh, this, this verse But again, this is Pentecost Sunday, so we're going to try to focus on Pentecost and what that means, and you can't talk about Pentecost without talking about the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is another topic at some point to talk about, but we will uh, do our best to to address some of the things that we believe about the Holy Spirit, but again, this is the focus for this Sunday. So uh, with that, let's give our attention to the reading of God's Word found in the book of Acts this morning, chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. When the day of Pentecost arrived, let me stop there for a second. What you, what, what, I wanted to say this: right before this, um, this is the this is part two of Luke's gospel. Right before this, Jesus has appeared for the last time to his disciples, and he has what he has ascended to the throne. And this event is what happens following that ascension, and that'll be important. But that's where we are. Jesus has died. He's resurrected. He's shown himself. He's met one last time with the disciples, and he has ascended now to the right hand of the Father where he reigns over all things. And now he is giving, pouring out his Spirit upon the nations. Verse 1 When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, talking about the disciples, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on one of them, on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues The mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? Let me pray now and ask God to teach us His word. Heavenly Father, we pray now that you would do a miracle, and by miracle, that you would soften hardened hearts, that you would open our eyes and our ears, that we may see and hear things otherwise we could not. And would you do this for your glory alone, we pray? Amen. On August 12, 1939, The Wizard of Oz premiered. This is the adaptation from L. Frank Bond's uh, book, and I'm sure by now you've had a chance to see it. So, spoiler alert. <laughs> Um, but if you do any research or study on the impact that this movie had within the, um, the, the world of movies, you know that um, it really ushered in, in so many ways, a new age in movie theater production, and, and, and what was that? It was the introduction to color. And how they did that, too, was even amazing. It didn't start out in color, if you've seen the movie, right? It comes in as Dorothy, um, you know, her house gets spun up in a tornado. It lands, and she doesn't know where she is. And she opens the door, and boom, she comes into this whole new world, and it's in color, technicolor, right? We yawn at it today with our HD, but um, this, is, this is what happened. And, 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 and it's interesting. People have done a lot of research on people's responses to this, Um, what they thought when they saw it. And here's one critic, one critic writes this, that people were stunned and amazed and above all enchanted. For some moviegoers, it was the first time they'd seen anything in color. And the way it was introduced was really original and unexpected at the time. No one who was introduced to the color that way ever forgot that moment. It was a new way to see and experience the movies. A new age had arrived. Well, this Sunday, as I've said, is Pentecost Sunday, and that literally means 50th day, right? It's the 50th day after the Jewish Passover, or what we celebrate as Easter. So 50 days ago, we celebrated Easter. And in many ways, though, Pentecost, the time known as this event when God poured out His Spirit on the nations, it comes to us in Scripture as color came to the movies in The Wizard of Oz that day. That is, it marks for us a new age, a new age in the unfolding plan of God's redeeming purposes. And it ushers in a new way of seeing and experiencing God himself as well. J.I. Packer notes it this way. He says, The significance of Pentecost morning was twofold. It marked the opening of the final era of the world history, of world history before Christ's return, and as compared with the Old Testament era, it marked a tremendous enhancing of the Spirit's ministry and of the experience of being alive to God. This is, this is Pentecost. And so because of, because of this, because Pentecost tells us uh, a new age in God's unfolding redemption, his plan for redemption, that it has actually begun, this new age, we then as believers can have confidence to know that God is, Jesus is truly enough, right? And that God is at work today in our lives through his Spirit. That's what Pentecost is, and that is what Pentecost does for us. And the reason it does this is because Pentecost tells us that God's redemption in Jesus is accomplished. And it tells us that God's redemption is being applied to us by the Holy Spirit. And it tells us that the end is near. And those are the three things I want to drive home this morning that Pentecost tells us that redemption is final, it is complete in Jesus Christ. That's what this event is, is telling us. It's telling us as well that this wonderful salvation that, that Peter will begin talking about and that, we, that we, we talk about every Sunday, we call it the gospel, it is actually being applied to you by the Holy Spirit. Pentecost also tells us so that the end is near and that God's plan for redemption is coming to an end where we wait for Jesus' return to make all things new. So those are the three things that I want us to look at. And because those things are true, you can have peace. You can have confidence, right, that that Jesus is enough, and that the Holy Spirit is, in fact, working in your lives as believers. All right, so let's take that first one. Pentecost tells us that redemption is accomplished. It is final in Christ. Pentecost, as we've said, is the day that God poured out the Holy Spirit, in a way that he had not done up until this point. And this is, you know, it was a question, was the Holy Spirit not around in the Old Testament? Yes, the Holy Spirit was around. But this is, this is something new. This is a new age in his unfolding plan for redemption. And as we said, Pentecost means 50th day, 50th day. It's 50 days past that of Passover or Easter that we celebrate, which is the day of Jesus' resurrection. All right, so how, how then does Pentecost fit into the story of Scripture? Because this is important to kind of hold this together in this first point. In the Old Testament, God worked in and through a particular people called Israel, going all the way back to Abraham, who he called these people to be their, his agent of redemption to the world, to bring blessing to the world. But redemption, as we learn, would only come through the true and faithful Israelite, Jesus Christ. He would be the one, as we turn to the New Testament, that would do the work that Israel was called to do. That he would accomplish redemption on the world's behalf. And because this has happened, that salvation that we, that we have faith in, that redemption that we'll define here in a second, right, it's final, it is complete. John Stott notes it this way Pentecost is the final act of the saving ministry of Jesus Christ. Before he returns, whether you are a sports fan or not, uh, if you turned on the TV at any given time in your, you know, today or tomorrow or whatever, and you saw, right, some, some, some folks in a locker room throwing champagne all over the place, you at the very least would probably think they must have won something, it's going to give you give you that at least, right? If you turn on the TV, right, and there's champagne being thrown all over people, something good happened here, right? And and if you're following the NBA, right, I'm sure we all are, right? NBA championships going on right now, Boston Celtics, right? Okay, all right. Um, that's happening, right? One of those teams will be spraying champagne at some point at the end of the NBA championship, all right? Baseball, we love baseball, World Series, we see that a lot. We associate this as Americans, right, the culture that we live in with celebration. We have grown accustomed to associating that scene with the final victory of the season with whatever sport that might be. That championship status has been accomplished. Well, Pentecost is is, is telling us the same thing. That in Jesus, through his life, through his death, all of this, right, this is all redemption. Life, death, resurrection, ascension, right, all of that redemption has been accomplished for you. It is worked. It is complete. It is final. When we say redemption, we mean the, the, the buying back of or the purchasing of ones who are enslaved. That is the biblical definition for redemption. The purchasing back, right, the buying back of those who are enslaved. And the gospel story then is one where what? The Son of God, Jesus Christ, purchases us who are what? Enslaved to sin by his blood. That's how he buys us. That's what I mean when I say redemption. And this redemption is all tied together in the life and death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. And Pentecost, this pouring out of the Spirit is that final act, if you will. So when we throw that term around, we have to include all of those things because Scripture does. Peter will, will make reference to this uh, if you just look briefly at verses 30 to 33 in this wonderful sermon that, re, that needs its own, uh, probably two or three sermons actually. But he says this, being therefore a prophet, actually talking about King David and referring to Psalm 16, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, should be good review for us from this past winter spring, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up and of that, we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. It's all there. It's all there. And what Peter is, is essentially saying is that without the perfect life, we'll put it in the negative, without the perfect life of, life of Jesus, his death doesn't actually pay for sins, Right? And without Jesus' pain for sins, Jesus cannot be vindicated or resurrected as God. And without the resurrection of Christ, Jesus is not fit to what rule over all things because he has not conquered all things. And without his ascension, we know he does not have authority over all things. Peter is tying all of that together as God's plan for redemption, but it's Pentecost. It's Pentecost, the giving of that Spirit, that what testifies that all of that stuff, all of those things, that they're good, they're complete, their final victory is here in Christ alone. And this is important because what it means then for us is that we can actually rest— And knowing that Jesus is enough, that Jesus is enough. What do I mean by this, right? I mean, literally, that nothing else has to be done for redemption to be complete, for salvation to be made possible, nothing, nothing. And this is important because it shapes everything of who you are as a Christian, whether you've grown up in the church or not, whether you're visiting a church for the very first time today, please listen to this because this, this, this shapes everything as a Christian. Either you believe that Jesus is enough or you don't, and therefore have to compensate or supplement his work. There's only two ways to go in this world. Pentecost is telling you he's enough, he's enough because he's enough, you can rest in that redemption. As a matter of fact, the Bible calls you to do this. And to the extent that if you're not resting, right, you need a shepherding elder to come over you and pray for you. Wouldn't that be fun? If if Jesus isn't enough, though, Please listen to this, because this, is, in some senses, this is always true in, in certain ways in our lives. right? Your, you work. you push yourself to try to supplement his work to make it enough. It's the treadmill of legalism. The treadmill of works, righteousness, and this is what kills Christianity, because it's not the gospel. It's not Christianity. It changes the gospel from a gospel of of, of grace to a gospel of works. Pentecost, friends, is telling you here in Acts 2 that you don't need to wonder or fear that something else needs to be done. Hear that this morning. That nothing else needs to be done in order for salvation to be final or accomplished. Pentecost is telling you that Jesus has done it, that he is enough, and that your job as a Christian is not to add to this in any way as if we even could, but to actually rest in it because it is final. This is the first point. Pentecost tells us that redemption is accomplished, that it is final in Jesus Christ. And because that's true, you can have peace, you can have confidence to know that Jesus is enough. And, and, and why I labor here is, 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 we'll get to this later, I guess, but I think that's part of the Christian life. Coming in here, seeing your faces and being encouraged and being reminded that Jesus really is enough. And though my life perhaps hasn't looked or lived, lived that way this week, I come in here to be reminded of that. And I come in here to partake of this table where, where he strengthens my faith to believe that that's true. That's Christianity. And if we're people walking around thinking that, that, that this is always the case for us, and maybe for some of you it is, I don't want to downplay that, but I think for the majority of people that experience the church and experience Christianity and just knowing my heart, and I assume there's a similarity there for you as well, I wrestle day in and day out as to whether Jesus is enough. And I supplement that with all of my works, all of my obedience, because I don't believe that he really loves me. That's what's underneath that. That he would actually come and do all this because he cares about me. And if that's you this morning, I want you to hear, that's what Pentecost means. Right? The Spirit has been poured out because he, he wants you. He wants you. Let us move though to the second point here. It's not just accomplished. Pentecost tells us that the Holy Spirit will now apply this wonderful salvation. What, what's the Holy Spirit, first off? We need to have some, little, some discussion here about the Holy Spirit. Um, the Bible teaches us that the Holy Spirit, as the third member of the Trinity, is a distinct person, as the Father is and as the Son is. The Holy Spirit is fully God. It's not some derivative of God, but fully God himself. We read that the Bible refers to the Holy Spirit as counselor, That the Holy Spirit speaks, teaches, witnesses, searches, determines, intercedes, and can be grieved. And to come back to J.I. Packer again, only of a personal being can such things be said. This is not all the Holy Spirit is and does. This is just setting the table here a little bit. So having said this, the role of the Holy Spirit is then to apply the salvation that the Son has accomplished. But how does the Holy Spirit do this? Well, in short, by coming to rest upon you. To live in you is another way to put it. As God's new temple, uniting himself to Christ's work. This is what we mean by salvation. This is, this is again, The Wizard of Oz phrase here, pulling back the curtain and seeing how it works. Chapter 2 begins, the disciples, now apostles, as we move into Acts, were all together in one place, and suddenly the text says they experience what we might call a sensory overload or explosion. They hear and they see and feel the presence of God as the Holy Spirit is poured out over them in this room. Verse two says, suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Verse three, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. When we read this, right, the sound of wind, the appearance of fire, right, those images are often how God's presence in the Old Testament was seen and heard, fire being perhaps the most familiar to us. We think about Moses uh, encountering God in a burning bush that is on fire but not being consumed. We think about Egypt being rescued from uh, Egypt and being led at night by what? A pillar of fire. But here, something different is happening, what is, what is this fire doing? What does Luke describe this fire doing? It is what? Resting, as the text says, on those there, on believers. And this resting actually signifies two things that are changing in this new age of redemption. And the first is God is fulfilling a promise to put his spirit in you. This is a promise he made back in Exodus 36. But he's also promising to write his law on your heart. This was another promise that Jeremiah made back in chapter 31 of Jeremiah. As we said earlier, Pentecost is the 50th day after Passover, and this was marked by a festival, a a feast of weeks or a feast of harvests, right? Jesus has told his disciples to remain in Jerusalem. And why? Because everybody's coming to Jerusalem for this festival. He knows what's going on. But guess what else happened, right? 50 days after Passover in the Old Testament, and if you get it right, you get a star today, The giving of the law of Moses and Israel on Mount Sinai in the book of Exodus. What does this mean then? In short, as the new age of God's plan unfolding, right, a new harvest and a new way for the law of God to come to his people is now at play. What marked the day of of giving, uh, the giving of the law to Moses will now double as the day that the law was what? Written on their hearts by the Holy Spirit. Promise one. And just as Jerusalem is preparing to celebrate the harvest here, right, Pentecost will mark, what a new harvest. We'll see 3,000 this day, the text will record. But it will be many more than that later of men and women, what, coming to faith. And Peter marks this as he he reads in verse 38. I'll probably back up the page verse 37, and now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, referring to the gospel and what they had done to Jesus, and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will what? Receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You will receive. This is what that rested in verse 3 signifies. It is the Spirit coming to live in you. God is pouring out His Spirit upon His people to live in them and to give them new hearts. And in so doing, applying the wonderful salvation of Jesus Christ that comes to us by faith. The age of offering sacrifices in the temple, for example, is over. The new age is here. Why? Because you are the new temple now, according to the New Testament. And why are you the new, te- new temple, by the way? Well, well, did you all of a sudden just clean yourself up? No, Jesus did for you. You are now actually, um, because of Christ's work accomplished for you, you're holy in the eyes of God. You're, you're okay to come and be, be with. That's what that's saying. And look, I can just think about a few of the things that I thought and did this week. I don't feel like I'm that person that that God can actually be with. But this, this is why we go back to the first point. The work is accomplished. You are the temple that God is living in by His Spirit as He comes to rest on you, residing in you, uniting you to Jesus and His work. And what he has done, applying that wonderful salvation. And because this is true, we can have confidence to know that that, that not just Jesus is enough, but also that God is actually at work in you through the Holy Spirit. What do I mean by this? It means that it's the Spirit's job to apply the salvation that Jesus has won for you To conform you to his image. And what does it look like for this to happen according to the New Testament? Well, one, it looks like the fruit of the Spirit bearing fruit in your life, like being produced in your life. Paul will give us this in Galatians 5. What's the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Those things now become the mark of believers, right? That The Spirit produces. They are no longer the means, if you will, by which you are saved. It's the mark. Right. Second, though, we can add faith and repentance to this. These are now the tools Right? These are the tools that the Spirit uses in our life, right, in our Christian walk, to grow us into this wonderful salvation as redeemed sinners who are now heirs to the kingdom. And then lastly, though, there's obedience. Obedience now to God's law actually becomes possible because the Spirit, what, gives us the power to obey. This, friends, is the Spirit's work In you. And so the question becomes, right, as we move out of the second point, like, do we see, do I see that fruit in my life? Do you see that fruit in your life? Are the tools of faith and repentance, both gifts of the Spirit, by the way, gifts of Christ, are they familiar to you? Are they what we go towards as opposed to some new book that's gonna change us or some new podcast? The tools are faith and repentance. Is obedience to Christ not just a reality or a possibility for you, but really a joy at times? A new desire for you. I, I do want to live this way. I don't want to live this way. And the hard part about this, another plug for home groups, is the only way you can really know this, be honest is if you have somebody close enough in your life to tell you. And that gets really uncomfortable. You can't self-diagnose the Spirit's work in your life. I mean, there might be some things you can do, but I, I I don't do a good job of that. I both discount what he's doing in my life, and at times, probably overindulge a little bit. You need people who know you, friends, that you're willing to open up with about this, spouses, right close relationships that can look at you over a, a, a span of time, not, not a day, not a week, six months, a year, two years, to say, you know what, here's what I've noticed in your life. And I don't know if you've seen this, right, but like, hey, you, are, you are really a more kind and less angry person. I don't feel that way. You don't get to say. Because we're, you're not the receiver of that anger, for example. Your friends are. Your spouse is, right? These are the people that we need in our lives to show us this. And, 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 and I labor here because like, this, this is a— How do we really experience this as Christians, right? How do we really experience the, the fruit of the Spirit being worked in our lives as the Spirit comes to apply this wonderful salvation? And I'll use the example of patience. I'm not a patient person. Let's just, let's just start there. Okay, so then I'm, I'm convicted of that, perhaps, right? I'm convicted of the times when my lack of patience is really sinful towards my kids, my, my, my wife, friends, you, whatever. we we're all friends, right? But just, you know, congregation. And so I, I'm convicted of that, so I repent because those are the tools. And then I'm reminded that, the, that God's promises are still true for me in Christ, and so I grow, I, I, I trust in that reality. But then another situation arises where I'm impatient again. Again, it could be my kid, spouse. And I, and I just think, like, am I changing at all? And some of us understand this dialogue up here, right? It, we guilt ourselves. Like, we're not Christians. We're not changing, we say. And we wonder, right, what is really going on in my life? But this is where we actually make the fatal error. At this point is we say as Christians, right? I've got to start producing this fruit. Let's get the podcast going on patience. Let's get new books on patience. Right? And what I want you to remember from this day forward as Pentecost Sunday, as as the spirit being poured out to apply the salvation is that's where you stop and you come back to the promise that no, this is the spirit's work in my life. And maybe I need to engage with some people to see where that's actually showing up, but this is where I'm going to trust. And I'm actually going to pray that the Lord would continue to produce patience in my life, but really that the Lord would continue to do what he's promised to do in the Holy Spirit. He is the one that does this work in you. And because that's true, You can rest in that. You can know that the Spirit is always at work because he has come to rest in you, to live in you. And I think it's a wonderful thing when the church really gets involved in this in each other's lives. As a matter of fact, I think that's one of the purposes of the church, that we could be a place where we are reminding each other, hey, the Spirit is at work in your life. Let me pray with you because I know you're discouraged because you're not seeing it in this area. You're you're, you're frustrated or guilted as a parent because you are not the parent you want to be. You're not the friend that you want to be. Let me pray for you. If we're not doing that, where are you getting that? Who else is doing this to actually pray about or remind each other of the promise of Pentecost, that the Spirit has been poured out to apply the wonderful salvation of Jesus Christ? Is that happening at work for you? No, and I'm not intending to be angry about that. I'm just saying, this is what the church is for. This is God's intention in this new age of redemption as it unfolds. And he calls us to partake in this, to to believe in it, to trust in it, to pray for it, because this is the work the Spirit is doing. All right, third point, way too much ad lib here, I'm sorry. There's a lot to talk about. Spirit is alive today. Uh, Third point, no pun intended. Um, Spirit tells us, or Pentecost tells us that the end is near. Uh, And what I mean by that is God's return, Jesus' return is near. Uh, I'll, I'll go briefly here. At Pentecost, we see God is activating His plan to bring salvation to the nations, And we think about Pentecost, we think about the Holy Spirit, and we we probably, hopefully, think about the nations. That this is a pinnacle moment where God's new age of redemption is unfolding to not just be confined to Israel, but to go to the nations to gather them. And what I want us to see that that indicates is that the time is near. The time is near. The age of God's redemption is coming to a close, according to Scripture. We look at verse 5. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at the sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? What's happening here? Briefly, as all these are gathered, as the apostles, as the spirits come on, the apostles, they're speaking in their Galilean language, right? But all these nations gathered are hearing it in their own native tongue. So as I speak English, right, if we had somebody in here whose native tongue is, is French or Chinese, right, or Spanish, right, as I speak English, you're hearing this in your native tongue. This is what's going on. Right? It's often used as, as the, the illustration. If you think about the United Nations, when they come and they gather in New York, right, they all have on their headsets, And whoever's speaking speaks in their native tongue. But what do you hear? They hear their native tongue. It's Not too far away from what is being described here in the text. And what's the point of this? Verse 11, what are they hearing? The mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? It means, friends, that a new age has come in God's unfolding plan of redemption. Not just that redemption would come through the Son of God, not just that the Holy Spirit would be poured out on all believers, thus sealing them in Christ, but also that the great mystery of God's will, as Paul put it in Ephesians 3, is being revealed that salvation is coming to the nations. And what that tells us As time is drawing near, God's plan of redemption is coming to a close. And this is why, on the heels of this account, and as we move into the New Testament, and as Peter speaks here, what is it that he calls those listening to do? To repent and be baptized. And I have always heard this in the, in the context of hell, right? Let's guilt some people into the kingdom. You don't want to go to hell, do you? I don't. Or repent. Be baptized. And friends, hell is real. I'm not downplaying that. But I don't think that's what Peter's actually doing here. Peter's appealing to the wonderful redemption offered to you in Christ. That's what we are to repent of and be baptized into, Repent of the ways that we have, what, wanted to be king ourselves, but not given homage to the true King, Jesus Christ, but be baptized into the wonderful redemption that Jesus has accomplished for you. Be baptized, right, into the wonderful redemption that the Holy Spirit being poured out is now applying in your life. Be baptized into the reality of living in a world where you can be told and believe over and over that Jesus is enough. Because outside these walls, everybody's looking for that. What is going to be enough? And they're not going to find it. At the end of every bottle, right, pornography, like all the things that our hearts go to, they think this is what's going to do it. Fill in the blank. You have it be baptized into that wonderful redemption that he is enough and that he promises to do this work in you by his Holy Spirit. That though you might not see the change in your life, right, or in your parents' life or in your siblings' life, he is working. He's not left you. These are his promises on your behalf. This is what Peter is calling those there to do. And I would extend that same invitation to you this morning as well. And if you're new here and you don't know what that means, let's talk about that. Right? If you've been around the church, I've been baptized, I know what this is all about. Great. Be reminded of what it is you're actually being baptized into. Not from something, so to speak, although that's a part of it. Yeah, you're you're escaping uh, an eternity uh, that is unimaginable. And it's pain and affliction and, and just loss. But You're being baptized into the finished work of Christ on your behalf. And let me leave you with this one thing before we pray of what this actually means for you here this morning who have given your life to Christ. Because Pentecost means this as well, that God would fulfill his promise in giving the Son an inheritance. An inheritance. I wish we had more time to explore this promise, but Psalm 2, and we'll look at that this summer, says this, Says the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. When we read Psalm 2, right, it, it paints the picture of, of a battle scene that has been won by the king. And as the king's reward, right, he has promised to be given the nations by the Father as an inheritance. And in these days, when we listen to this language, right, in these days, what that meant typically was that the defeated people, those who lost in battle, they would become the slaves of those who won. And the spoil, right, would become their inheritance. But here, here, victory is won a different way. Although the battle inheritance language is the same, victory in Jesus our King is won not by conquering the nations, but by offering his own blood for the nations. And the spoil isn't you or those to be enslaved by him, so to speak, right? The the spoil is that he has given you, you are given to him as his inheritance to be heirs to his kingdom. Do you see the reversal? Do you see the beauty? If not, let me bring it home to you real quick. What this means, then, is that because of Christ's work, the Father gives the Spirit to the Son, and the Spirit pours it out at Pentecost so that he might get you as an inheritance. It's because he loves you. It's because he wants to be with you. And however you might fight that battle up here, this is what's objective. And you know how it's true? Pentecost. Pentecost. The giving of God's Spirit to His people to tell you that a new age of His unfolding redemption is upon us, friends. May we see Jesus. May this lead us to always see Jesus in a new way and to experience, right, Him in a new way until He returns. Let me pray for us, Heavenly Father. Perhaps for many of us, we have seen your work in a new light. And I pray, Lord, that the seeds of, of faith in this room would, would grow to return a crop tenfold, so to speak. Would you do that by the work of your Holy Spirit that you promised to give us? That it would change us. That it would change the way we see Jesus. It would change the way we experience him until he returns. And would you do this... For your glory we pray, amen.